December 14th, 2012, my birthday. I was in Peru in a hotel on a treadmill set to a jogging pace with the television on in front of me. Suddenly, the news shifts abruptly and reports are coming out about gunfire and children being shot at this school called Sandy Hook Elementary. My legs gave out. My arms caught the railings of the treadmill, so I didn't fall onto the ground, but it did pull me off backwards, and I, and I stumbled back and then went to my knees and started to cry. And we have been there many times since, and we have certainly been there this past week aching with fresh tears, anger, even despair. And I confess, I've wondered all, all week what to say because there is so much to say and also there are no words. I've looked around the Bible trying to find a scripture for us to hear, only to return to the one I just read in Acts chapter 16 because that's the one from today's lectionary, the one that was chosen for us a long time ago. To hear on this Sunday. And I returned to it because I saw something in this passage that was hidden in plain sight. I honestly never noticed it. When I think of this story of Paul and Silas in the prison singing to God, I think of this great earthquake that, that frees them and this joyful ending of the, 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 the guard and his household, all of them you know, baptized and they share a meal. You know what I never noticed? This is a scripture with violence and the threat of violence everywhere in it. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace. The crowd joined the attack against them. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with, with rods. They were severely flogged, thrown into prison, the jailer puts them into the inner cell and, and fastens their feet with stocks. There's a violent earthquake. The jailer draws his sword and is about to kill himself. I, I love the part of the story where they're singing to God against that midnight hour. But, but after all these years, how, how did I miss just how deep and, and terrifying this particular midnight. Maybe, maybe for some of the same reasons I often miss that, that our reality is charged with violence or the threat of violence. You think for a moment on, on our context, and I'm going to offer a, a few stats, not to belabor the point, but, but simply to make clear what, what, what sometimes maybe is hidden in plain sight. You know, we, we live in a country where the gun homicide rate is 26 higher, times higher than other high-income countries. Now, 99% of these shootings, they don't make the news, are not considered mass shootings, and so inevitably that's part of why they can feel invisible. The U.S. firearms death rate period, it increased 10% from 2003 to 2015 as it fell among other high-income countries. 
When it comes to mass shootings, and I know that's defined differently and so forth, but even a, a conservative uh, definition of mass shootings, the U.S. is the only developed country to have such shootings happen every single year for the past 20 years. A third of the time, the shooter in these mass shootings commits suicide. For decades, car crashes were the leading cause of death between Americans ages 1 to 19. But in 2020, gun violence surpassed car crashes as the number one cause of death for children and adolescents. Car crashes now number two and drug overdose and poisoning number three. We could go on with stats. We could then look to the world and, and, and easily point to numerous ways we see on the news and we don't see on the news where violence and the threat of violence serve as a context. Now, to be sure, we are different in so many ways than the ancient world, right? But perhaps in ways we may not always appreciate or even see, violence and the threat of violence are part of the context. And on weeks like this past week, perhaps we feel like Paul and Silas sitting in the darkness of that prison. Not because others have done violence to us and put us there, but simply because we feel that helpless. Our hands, our feet, our, our voice, does, does it ever feel like no matter how hard we try to push for change, pull for change, cajole change, that we're fettered in this darkness of our own making. You know, I got an email yesterday from a member who, who wrote, it is difficult to avoid complete despair. As he was reflecting on the feeling that nothing does seem to change and then nothing that, that you do seems to make a, a difference. And, and maybe, maybe when you're bound and imprisoned and all in that night is, is, is ache and despair, maybe you show up to church because you just need to sit with Paul and Silas in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, I've long imagined the two of them offering prayers for deliverance and, and singing joyful hymns against the night sky and, and even against the people that put them there. And, and certainly in the Greek, the word hymns implies praise of, of God. But what hymns exactly did they sing? Perhaps did they sing praises like those from the end of Psalm 10 that you heard Robert read? The Lord is king forever and ever, did they sing into the night sky. You, Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry, defending the fatherless, defending the oppressed, so that Mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. And if they sang something like the end of Psalm 10, did they arrive at those words of praise by singing some of the earlier parts of Psalm 10? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he innocents. He murders the innocents. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. 
Who knows? Precisely what Paul and Silas prayed and sang. But I do imagine Psalm 10 feels like a faithful midnight song for many today. If we are praying and praising, it is carried from a place of raw lament and anger and questions and ache. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake. So violent it shook the foundations of the prison. All the doors flew open. The chains came loose. You know, I used to think in this story that God sent the earthquake to save Paul and Silas and the others. Maybe because Paul and Silas were singing and praying to God. But that assumption is not stated explicitly in our text. All it says is that suddenly a violent earthquake shook the foundation of the prison. Nothing about an earthquake from God or or not from God. Just simply a violent earthquake. Every mass shooting is a violent earthquake. Not from God, not at all. Violent, yes. Earthquake, yes. Because every single one of these, especially those like in Uvalde, shakes at our imprisoned foundation where where we, we seem locked in this cycle of violence and ideological division and inability to pave a different path and and then we see the children on the floor and it's like for a few brief moments whatever sacred ideologies hold us whatever cynicism holds us whatever fears hold us whatever apathy holds us it's like the entire foundation is shaken and broken and cracked open and the proof of the cracks are all of the tears that start to come through suddenly we are jarred awake jarred to compassion jarred to holy anger by a violent unholy earthquake What do Paul and Silas do with this sudden, perhaps brief, unfettered reality? What do they do when this violent earthquake frees them? Was it tempting to just start running and hiding, never to be seen again, and let the jailer kill himself? Was it tempting to just let the cycle of violence do his thing and get out of the way? Paul shouts to the jailer, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Without weapon or recourse, Paul risks his voice. The newly freed people with Paul, they risk their bodies by remaining in the unknown darkness. It's extraordinarily vulnerable, really, the way they put themselves out there before the one with the sword. Suddenly, they're seeking to help the one who is their enemy. Will it work? I mean, that's, that's the risk here, right? If love is offered fully enough and vulnerably enough, if love risks everything, even and especially in the presence of enemies, can the same old cycle of violence be thwarted? Is it possible love can thwart the worst the sword can do? We're all here. 
Might voices raised and bodies given and letters written and leaders petitioned and communities nourished and strengthened across the dividing lines that separate us and separate our families? Might, might vulnerable love thwart the worst a gun can do? I mean, what if in the wake of these recent violent earthquakes, the church kept saying in the darkness, we're all here. There's another way. We're all here. There's another way. We're all here. The jailer drops his sword trembling falls before Paul and Silas. Sirs, what, what must I do to be saved? Is he asking about eternal salvation? Is he about salvation from the impending violence he predicts will come his way because of these freed prisoners? Both. Regardless, the answer is clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe or, or, or trust. Trust in Jesus and trust in the things this Jesus is about. Trust that this Jesus actually does save. He does bring healing. He does change hearts. He, he does reconcile divided people. He does break bonds of entrenched evil. He does, he does prioritize the children. He does and is bringing forth his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The one where scripture declares, no more shall the sound of weeping be heard. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. The kingdom where the wolf and the lamb lie down together. The kingdom where swords are turned to plowshares. The one where love is stronger than death every time. What must you do to be saved? What must your household do to be saved? Trust in that Jesus. And that vision, that has saving power. Do we trust that this day? Or, or does such belief become quite difficult, maybe, maybe even impossible on this day? You know, in moments like ours, I'm convinced the greatest temptation most of us face is, is to crawl back on that treadmill or maybe just get sucked right back on that treadmill. Get busy with the same old motions of life, same old entrenched stalemates over gun violence, running, moving, but going nowhere. Many a despairing cynic does that treadmill make. Or is it possible this unholy earthquake has jarred just enough of God's people to the point that they decide to stay on their knees and make clear time and again through these impossible tears, we're all here, we're all here in the name of Jesus, in the way of Jesus, in the strength of Jesus, we're all here. I read a story a couple years ago 
about a teacher who asks her fifth grade class every Friday to take out a piece of paper and write down the names of four children with whom they'd like to sit with the following week. The children know these requests may or may not be honored. She also asks the students to, to nominate on their piece of paper uh, one student who has been the exceptional citizen of the class this past week. All ballots are then privately submitted to the teacher. And once the children have left, the, the, the teacher takes these slips of paper and places them in front of her and studies them, and she's looking for patterns. Who's not getting requested by anyone else? Who can't think of anyone to request? Who never gets noticed enough to get nominated? Who had a million friends two weeks ago, but then nothing? These last couple. For this teacher, the exercise is not fundamentally about seating charts or voting on the exceptional citizens. She is looking for, for which students are struggling to connect with other children, which ones maybe are being forgotten, overlooked, which ones are falling through the cracks or, or maybe getting unnoticed a little more, maybe being bullied. She's looking for patterns and changes in patterns that she might know a little bit more about the heart of her students. Well, a parent, upon learning about this system, being impressed about how attentive this, this teacher was, a parent asked, wow, what an exercise. How, how long have you been doing this? And she replied, ever since Columbine, every Friday since Columbine, anything that might mitigate against the next mass shooter coming from among these who pass through my doors. Countless are the ways, big and small, that the people of God refuse the treadmill and live for and advocate the way of life and justice, the way that protects the most vulnerable among us. For we are saved by a God in Jesus Christ who himself refused the treadmill of the same old sin and violence, death and evil, entrusted that it would be most fundamentally not by way of the sword, but by way of love that the world is overcome. Some days it feels really hard to believe on that. Some days, the best we can do is gather and lament. And that, too, is a faithful resisting of the treadmill. A faithful showing up. Holy Spirit, when we know not what to do or how to make a difference, even when we don't believe that your way is at work or can work... Holy Spirit, somehow join our voices and our bodies to that of Paul and Silas. May our lives make clear one way or another that we are all here. Do no more harm. We are all here in the name of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the vision of Jesus. We're all here. Amen.